I think that the U.S. nuclear industry has become somewhat collateral damage in the war between fossil and renewable advocates. And I think it makes me kind of sad. What do you think? That's a great question. I do think that nuclear has focused more on promoting its baseload characteristics than its clean energy characteristics. And that was probably a mistake. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Colorado Energy Leaders podcast. Uh, This episode is the third in a three-part series I'm making on nuclear energy. Uh, The first one was an introduction, and the second one was kind of the progressive case for nuclear energy with Susie Hobbs-Baker. And today I'm really excited to share the other side of that conversation, the conservative case for nuclear energy with Rich Powell of ClearPath. Rich Powell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. Very happy to be here. I think this conversation is going to be just awesome because you and Susie are incredible and uh, you're doing great work in the nuclear space. Before we dive into the work you're doing, tell us about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And, and what, is some of the, what is the organization you are in charge of? Sure. So I'm the executive director at ClearPath and ClearPath Action, and we're DC-based organizations that focus on advancing conservative policies that scale up clean energy innovation with the goal of solving climate change as a global challenge. Um, So we've got about 20 folks, um, policy folks, communications folks, um, uh, legislative entrepreneurs, if you will, a team of pretty seasoned people right off the hill that think about nothing but federal clean energy and innovation policy. And we think a lot about how do we scale up the full suite of zero emission power and now even industrial technologies that can eventually solve this challenge economically? And how do we get government out of the way of deploying those things? And how do we have government provide smart incentives to deploy them? And how do we either take down barriers or increase supports to international exports of these technologies so that they get out to the rest of the world, particularly the developing world where emissions are still increasing so quickly. Uh, I think the ClearPath has been doing incredible work, particularly in their area of providing uh, policymakers who are interested in it from a conservative-based lens, the kind of backbone or this framework upon which to attach, talking about clean energy and having conservative-based clean energy policies, which is why I think you're doing such good work. Well, that's nice of you to say. You know, I do think that there are relatively few folks working on the right of center. There are now more than there were when we got started, which has been a terrific development to see. And I do think that you've seen in the past couple of years a pretty remarkable evolution in the conversation in D.C. We're we're coming back to a bipartisan about clean energy and climate change. You know, I think in some sense it started in 2018 when a Republican-controlled Congress passed a lot of stuff that, if it had been framed as climate legislation, would have looked like a really big year in climate legislation. It just wasn't framed that way. It was framed as advancing carbon capture technologies or making big investments in clean energy R&D. And I think once conservative policymakers realized that they were actually very comfortable with doing a big set of legislation and policymaking, which actually was a significant contributor to limiting global climate change, that really started to change the conversation. And then you've seen in this last Congress just a significant evolution in how uh, openly and directly people are talking about the risks of climate and the contribution from global industrial activity and the many things that we need to do to solve that challenge. And we're actually uh, now starting to see that translate into real bipartisan support for um, even more impactful legislation and uh, ever further increases in clean energy innovation and R&D. Um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty exciting time to be working on this issue on our side of the aisle. Yeah, I, in preparation for this episode, I spent a lot of time reading and looking through some of the things that got passed in 2018, because as you said, it was a very big year. Um, and I'm excited to discuss some of those with you in, in a bit more detail here. But before that, I do want to ask of you particularly, why are you involved in energy? What about energy makes it something that I think with uh, really smart, and brilliant people like yourself, you know, 
you have the opportunity to do other things and you're using your time to forward clean energy. So what is it about clean energy that really um, gets you out of bed in the morning and gets you excited to contribute to this field? I don't know about really smart and brilliant. I, I might be out making millions of dollars in, uh, 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 you know, uh, right now in the, in the stock markets if I, was, uh, if, if I was that. But, you know, I, I think I've been drawn to uh, clean energy, you know, first as a, a sort of growing up as a, as a conservationist. I know it's a sort of a trite thing to say, but I was a, I was a Boy Scout and just spent a lot of time outside and thinking about nature and, and conservation. And uh, then as I went to college, I sort of discovered environmental science and policy as a, as a major. I went to law school and studied a bunch of this stuff as well. Um, thankfully, law school uh, showed me that I would have been a terrible corporate lawyer and that a, a company called McKinsey, <laughs> which is a, a management consultancy, sort of saved me. From, from a life in a corporate law firm where I would not have been a good fit. Uh, I'm not sort of set up for that kind of monastic uh, lifestyle. And uh, at McKinsey, I was then able to work on all kinds of problems that were both uh, substantively fascinating problems, just like really difficult and interesting problems. How does a, how does a, a retailer with a global footprint of uh, stores and distribution centers and operations, how do they think about better managing their global energy footprint, which is, you know, in some sense, the size of some countries, and then shift the sources of that energy over to cleaner energy over time? How does a, a, a country, a rapidly developing Asian country think about its green growth strategy? How does a, a new uh, attacking a uh, chemical company uh, wanting to enter into the uh, the e-waste disposal and, and recycling space and value creation from waste space, think about entering that niche. And so I was just able to work on this amazing variety of problems and also see that on one hand, the private sector simply can't do everything. So I think a lot of conservatives think about, oh, well, the private sector will just solve these problems. And I've been very, very deeply in the private sector, and they simply can't do it alone. They're under all kinds of pressures from their uh, fiduciary obligations to their shareholders and the limits of what the capital markets will allow them to do without punishing them and eventually removing their CEOs and all kinds of things. So, so uh, uh, companies, despite their best intentions, can't do it alone. They need help. And companies are endlessly creative. And so if they're given incentives and resources, they can go out and solve uh, remarkable problems using all of the innovation and entrepreneurship of the private sector. And so my last client when I was at McKinsey was this crazy entrepreneur from North Carolina named Jay Faison, who had just sold his company to General Atlantic in a completely different space. He wasn't an energy guy. And he was a lifelong conservative Republican, and he wanted to do something good on clean energy and climate. And so he founded what at the time was the Clear Path Foundation. And I came and helped him think through the early strategy, and I never left. And so uh, that's now evolved into our current family of organizations. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's how I got to, to be here and on this podcast today. <laughs> Yeah, I love, I love, I, I have read several of your, I've listened to some of your pod, some of the times you've been on podcasts and I've read some of your actual congressional testimonies. You're the um, one. You're the one. I'm the one what? That's actually, listen to them. Oh and, yeah, uh, there and, are and five of us. Yeah. There yeah, are okay. five of us. Right. We'll we'll I'll take it. I'll take no, it. I'll take you're, it. you're a very popular guy, Rich. Uh, no, but I think the way that you frame it uh, really around how businesses will do great things given the opportunity, but they can't shoulder everything. I think this is this really great pathway out of some of the ideological struggles that conservatism has faced with uh, tackling climate change. And so I'm just really excited to, to dive into that. Um, moving into the, 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 the part of the podcast that I want to get to, which is this con conversation around nuclear energy and um, conservatism and, and Republicans, I want to start with asking you, um, so let's pretend, uh, I did this with Susie Baker too. Um, for, for us, we pretended that Elizabeth Warren was going to be president in January, but you know, whatever. That's a sad dream we have lost. Um, but for you, let's pretend that, you know, uh, come November, Trump gets reelected. And in January, Trump decides, Rich Powell, you are going to be energy czar. You're, you're in charge of it. Like you get to get to run it. And you get to do a lot of work to redesign the energy system from the ground up. And uh, just 
kind of briefly, what are some of the principles or like guiding vision that you would use to design either the energy system or the policy surrounding the energy system to result in a, a clean energy system that's kind of based upon conservative principles? What would that look like? Well, first, I'm fascinated to hear Susie's answer to that question. So I, I look forward to hearing that uh, and uh, what, what she would do under President Warren. Um, she may yet get the shot. Who knows? Down the road. Uh, so let's see. That's a really big question. So first, I would just say a little bit of context about how I, how we at ClearPath think about climate change. Unfortunately, this is a fundamentally global challenge. And too often in the past, that's been used as kind of a shield, as, a, as something to say, well, it doesn't really matter what happens. We're just going to take a, like a kind of a nihilistic, fatalistic stance about this and say, well, you know, we can't change their behavior over in India or Indonesia or Nigeria or any of these rapidly developing countries. We can't stop Pakistan from building all of the subcritical Chinese coal with the help of the Belt and Road Initiative right now. So why would we risk a bunch of our economic prosperity, either through higher energy bills or potentially the loss of manufacturing to the developed world? Why would we, why would we take that kind of a risk for a very uncertain payout, right? The idea that we would you know, take all this activity on and that that would be like moral leadership, but that we're just not sure the followership will be out there globally. And so the way out of that trap, I think, is innovation, right? So the moment that the United States had developed the combination of uh, very, very cheap shale gas and very high performing combined cycle natural gas turbines that you could build for less than a buck a watt, that was like a magical combination. There's actually, at, but by the point that both of those were scaled up, federal policy support for both of those was, was effectively gone. There was an alternative production credit for natural gas in the 80s and 90s. It sort of ended in the aughts. And we had put a lot of resources into federal R&D on all of the technologies that went into shale gas, whether that was horizontal drilling or diamond head drill bits, 3D seismic imaging, uh, hydraulic fracturing, all those things. And we'd put federal resources into combined cycle turbines, which are just about the most uh, efficient way on the planet to make thermal, uh, to make electricity from thermal energy right now. So we, we had made all those R&D investments. But once that technology was there, it then took off by itself because it was just a better mousetrap. It, it was better performing, it was more flexible, it was more cost effective, and it was less polluting than many of the older generation coal plants that, uh, that it was replacing. And unfortunately now, you know, except for the less polluting part than some of the nuclear units that that, that, that energy is replacing. And so you know, we have seen a clear example of where if you just get the technology right, the markets will just adopt it. And if it happens to be cleaner, all the better. And so, you know, when we think about everything else we've done, um, all of the great gains we've made on wind and solar, you know, <laughs> despite the many promises from the wind industry in particular that, you know, they're, 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 they're finally ready to move beyond the subsidy regime and then sort of the subsidy regime keeps sort of coming back. We don't really have another one yet that can stand completely on its own, subsidy-free, uh, and policy free and scale up in the market. And I think the reason that we need that thing, whatever it is, and, and I hope it's an advanced nuclear plant. I think it also might be a, a zero emission fossil energy plant or, or a creative way to make hydrogen at enormous scale and use that or enhanced geothermal or a grid scale storage technology that can be paired with uh, variable renewables at, at such low cost that you could actually see those as a, as a, you know, 24-7, 365 kind of flexible resource. Um, when we have that, the markets will just take that up globally. And the reason that that's so important is, you know, I, I just think that the enthusiasm for climate policy, while it's reaching, I think, a high point today, and there may be a window for even more climate policy next year, it does tend to come and go, um, or at least it has over the last couple of decades. You know, we saw Australia, with a liberal government, enact a carbon tax, which a conservative government then immediately repealed. And then there's been no change in that conservative government. We've seen um, highs before in the United States in enthusiasm for carbon policy. You know, it kind of led to the conversation in 2000. 
nine around the WAC, the, the cap and trade bill and even John McCain running on a cap and trade uh, program in 2008. So we, we've seen this sort of come and go. And I'm, I'm not clear that we can rely on high ambition climate policy globally to drive this transition. The, the thing that I think we can rely on, that the world continues to rely on, the genie that you can't put back into the bottle is technology. The, the minute that there's a better technology out there, it starts its you know, gradual process of global diffusion. And at that point, then a, a Pakistan or an Indonesia or a sub-Saharan African country that's really just focused on you know, reliable electrification of a young and growing population so that they can have a great quality of life. And, and absolutely they should be, and especially the COVID moment shows us that they, they should be. The minute they have that, that's, that's the choice that they're going to make. And there's nothing inevitable about, in my view, there's nothing inevitable about high emitting technologies being that low cost, uh, uh, high performing technology. I think we can find the zero emitting technologies that do the same. And then if, if the clean energy is a sort of a nice benefit to have along with it, and there's kind of low ambition climate policy that can help its dispersion all the better, but I just don't think we can rely on policy to be the primary force around the world. So that's the long preamble to my question about what I would do and how I would think about it, right? But that sort of gives you the, the frame. And so that, then I think, so we've got then two challenges. We need these better technologies and we need them to be dispersed around the world. So how do we think about the US in that picture? Then it really sort of changes our framework for how we think about US clean energy policy, because then the US isn't, isn't just this, a system in a box that we need to decarbonize as quickly and as cheaply as possible. The U.S. is best thought of as a test bed for globally relevant clean technologies, a whole suite of globally relevant clean technologies that we can imagine being deployed around the entire world. That's where I would focus. That's the kind of um, uh, principles that would that would guide it, and that's the sort of policy that I would uh, that I would push as as energies are. As are. Sorry, very long answer to your question. No, no. So that was a very long answer. But I want to say I really appreciate it. And I really wanted to let you lay out that answer because I think it showed a lot of some of the things that you believe that make an energy system work. And so what I kind of heard coming out of that was a lot about innovation, a lot about market forces, and a lot about policies that enable innovation, but that we don't kind of rely on policy to get, get the job done. Uh, essentially, you know, using using limited government to build a market solution that then is uh, organic and self-propagating. And I really, uh, I really appreciate that. Answer. I like that. I like organic and self-propagating. I'm going to steal that. I was, I was a Coke scholar in undergrad, Rich. There, well, there you go. There you go. Organic <laughs> and, and self-propagating. They, they yeah. love the idea of emergent yeah. markets. I think that's their favorite yeah. little yeah. little catchphrase. Um, but uh, so I, I think they would the, not they would not love my ideas of incentives and uh, basic and applied R&D budgets and all that. But the emerging markets, they, they would be all for. Yeah. So I, I loved your narrative, but I do have to say there are a couple areas where I really think your narrative is supported by a false claim. And I want to get into that because I think this is where it happens in the case of nuclear with the United States. So I'm focusing a little bit on the United States, like starting here. Um, Democrats are pretty desperate to pass climate policy. They have put out policy after policy. They, they, are, they are just, they're in the fight. They have uh, young climate activists in their offices, very famously saying like, this is what we expect you to do. And on the other side of that, you have a very um, disaggregated Republican Party around the narrative around clean energy. Um, so, you know, I was reading about some quotes on this on the other side, kind of on your side of the aisle, basically around, uh, you know, either these plans are unrealistic or Democrats aren't serious because they're not technology agnostic. That's kind of the two, two veins that they really come into, you know, and, and the most famous one is people saying like, if Democrats are serious about climate change, then they would be thinking about nuclear or carbon capture, but instead they're, they're fascinated by, by wind and solar. But I want to start with this question about like innovation and not being able to trust policy. So you highlighted the example of transitioning from thermal generators, which were like coal and nuclear, which get about 40% thermal electric efficiency to natural gas combined cycle, which gets about 60%. And this is due to the physics of the, of the turbine. Combined cycle uses a gas turbine and then the waste heat for a steam turbine. Whereas, you know, with coal and, and nuclear, because of the output temperature, you only get a steam turbine. 
You cited that as an example of innovation that was unstoppable once it was invested in by the government. But if we look at other types of transitions, particularly things like, um, you know, the transition of refrigerants in uh, refrigeration units and the transition away from things like lead paint in schools, those were actually a different type of transition. At the time that lead paint was being replaced, there was a decent technology substitute, but it was not as cheap as lead paint. Lead paint was still the cheapest. And so it was actually a combination of both innovation and regulation, a statement that we said, we are not going to allow lead paint because it has a bad environmental impact. Even if it's not the cheapest, you're going to do something better. And we're not going to make that extra price exorbitant, but we're still going to say, you know, this will be regulated way. And so I want to hone in on one example that you put there. When it comes to nuclear energy, nuclear energy, in my opinion, will never be the most cost competitive electricity form of, excuse me, most never be the most cost competitive form of energy. It's never going to be the cheapest for lots of reasons. And that's okay. And I want to, I want to get into a couple of numbers about that. Um, but when I go back to this argument that sometimes conservatives or Republicans make about nuclear energy, they say, well, Democrats aren't serious about climate change because they're not serious about nuclear energy. And I was like, well, that may be true. I'm not going to like take that on from a, from a Democrat's perspective. But when it comes to conservatives, conservatives saying that is kind of a, a double standard because like you said, we can't trust policy. In Australia, a liberal government passed a carbon tax, but then the next government repealed it. The problem is the next gov government to repeal it was a conservative government. And so conservatives saying that we can't trust Democrats and conservatives saying that we can't trust policy when they're the ones who are undermining nuclear by cheaper technologies that are higher emissions or the ones who are repealing carbon taxes, like kind of strikes me as odd. In order to get nuclear energy deployed, which is a subject of this conversation, we will need both innovation and regulation. But the free market world that you kind of laid out doesn't seem to really have a place for nuclear unless there is a high level of regulation around emissions. And if we just rely on the cleanest energy technology that excuse me, the cheapest energy technology that happens to be clean, that probably isn't going to be nuclear. So there was a lot there. Um, <laughs> let, let, let me say, let me say one word about your, your point about the, uh, the climate ambition in, in policy and, and whether it's just, uh, you know, whether it's just, you know, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because conservatives will always be opposed to the, the to the expensive, you know, policy. And, and then, and then we should talk about nuclear. Yeah. Cause that's the whole, that's the whole point of this conversation. So yes. um, on the, on, on that one about this sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy, I think we should remember, you know, I use the example of Australia, but that, that is not the only example. And it is not only conservative governments that have backslid on the ambition, you know, of their of their policy. So, you know, France had the yellow vest uh, protests <laughs> after hike in fuel prices, which were, you know, driven by, I don't know, we would, we would call Macron's government a, a centrist government, whatever on March is, this is a centrist government, not certainly not a conservative government that pulled that policy back. And it wasn't even a change in government. It was just a, oh boy, we've got literally riots in the streets happening because of these, you know, these, um, these fuel surcharges, which at least were in part explained by, um, you know, sort of environmental controls and, and, and climate change. And, and so they backed off. So it's certainly not only conservative governments that have had um, trouble sort of maintaining the ambition for these policies. Um, I don't know what, I, guess, I mean, I guess technically the Chinese government is a very liberal government if it's a sort of, you know, you know, socialist communist government. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how we'd categorize that, but they, you know, <laughs> they've also, you know, they're perpetually on the cusp of having this emissions trading system, but then that emissions trading system like never actually comes into, uh, never actually comes into place or comes out of pilot stage. And, and I hope that that, you know, I hope that that changes, but uh, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that we can, say that it's just about an ideology and therefore that it's a self-fulfilling thing that conservatives say that, you know, this is, uh, uh, that this is, uh, this is not going to be out there. And the, the other thing I'll note is that I, I have uh, been gladdened to see uh, how many more liberals have started to embrace uh, nuclear because of its clean energy benefits. And so it's great that, you know, groups like Susie's have, have started to make the progressive case for these technologies. Of course, I disagree with all kinds of things that are the, the founding <laughs> principles, but we're, you know, we're, we're, we've got a meeting in the minds on the value of nuclear energy. So that's, that's terrific. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's been great to see uh, some, you know, leaders in the Senate, uh, you know, take Senator Booker, for example, who uh, likes nuclear as much for its, its clean air benefits and its ability to limit uh, urban air pollution and, and reduce the asthma load on um, the populations that, you know, that, that he serves. 
uh, as he does about the about the climate benefits. And so I think that it, it's it's been great to see that um, in, uh, in in the nuclear case. So then on on nuclear and whether it can ever stand alone uh, as its own technology. I guess I should say first and foremost at ClearPath, I'm not a nuclear advocate. I'm a clean energy technology advocate. So I think that the full suite of technologies, which could be that winner, that you know high perform, those winners, I should say, because I don't think there'll be one, um, that high performing, low cost, zero emission technology, which could get a whole grid to zero. Um, I think that nuclear ought to have a fair and fighting chance within that framework. And I think that it ought to have um, just as much R&D support as all the other technologies, potentially even more R&D support just because it's so heavily regulated and darn expensive to get up and running um, mm -hmm. in the early stages. But, you know, I, I don't, you know, support anything that kind of predestines that nuclear will be the winner. R rather, I think from the other way around, because of the power density that nuclear brings, I sort of think it's inevitable that, that nuclear will actually win and be thought of as the, the globally um, significant technology. I mean, if you think about a world that we're heading to by the end of this century, you know, that's going to have somewhere between nine and 10 billion, you know, middle to high income consumers and the energy load of that population, that civilization, which, you know, I think maybe an order of magnitude or higher than our energy load today, it's really hard to imagine anything other than, you know, something that's ultra power dense, uh, like nuclear potentially break, you know, at fission or breakthrough infusion, becoming the primary source of energy around the world. Um, I mean, you can tell yourself a story about unfathomable improvements in efficiency, and, and even if we have those, just you know, every person being connected to a 5G device and continuously consuming VR entertainment that's extremely energy intensive and, uh, you know, and eating, uh, you know, farmed meat or plant-based meat or whatever that's, you know, still quite a I mean, just every person on the planet doing that and living a high energy lifestyle. I just tend to think that in the end, the economics are going to sort of sort themselves out for these power dense uh, uh, sources. And I realize that's a little bit that's a little bit hand waving. So let me, you know, talk a little bit more specifically about about the point. So I I totally acknowledge that nuclear, wherever it has been built, uh, has been a, a sort of you know largely a, a big government, you know, well subsidized, um, uh, well subsidized thing. I will note that most of the power plants that were going to be built in the nuclear renaissance, most of the plants that were planned in the nuclear renaissance in the United States actually would have been, if natural gas prices had stayed as high as they were, would have been economical on their own terms with, with uh, a few of the first six receiving subsidies from the nuclear PTC. But the, the other 20 plants that were planned in the nuclear renaissance uh, all would have penciled um, uh, if the natural gas prices had stayed high and if there hadn't been the big pause of, um, of uh, Fukushima and if we hadn't seen you know, this, this uh, spike in prices from the construction of the first Vogel plants, which by the way, was actually, you know, part of that spike in prices was driven by the fact that all of the other construction work dried up. And so, so many of the contractors were just trying to extract all the value from that plant, as opposed to uh, being fair-minded about, you know, the supply of materials and parts and labor, because they were going to then go and, you know, build another 20 of those things. Um, so, so I don't think it's predestined in any way that nuclear would be the the, the high cost um, energy source. And as you know, it obviously has particular value characteristics, right? It's not just about the, the cost of a technology. It's, it's also about its revenue and the value that it provides. And I think that especially in a highly decarbonized uh, grid um, uh, where you're sort of trying to get that last, whatever it is, you know, 50 to 30% to of the way, um, you know, uh, most of these utilities that have made that pledge because their shareholders have asked them to have some form of nuclear, whether that's light water SMRs or advanced reactors, sort of firmly on the table as one of the ways that they'll get to net zero. So, so going back to what I said in the beginning, where I feel that renewable or that nuclear has somewhat become collateral damage in the fight between renewable and fossil advocates. Let's dive into the 45Q and the 45J tax credit change. So the 45Q uh, tax credit, which was targeted at 
carbon capture changed the amount of subsidy that was awarded to carbon capture technology up to $50 per metric ton for geologic storage and $35 per metric ton for enhanced oil recovery. And then the 45J tax credit provides a $18 per megawatt hour um, subsidy for advanced nuclear. So similar to the wind production tax credit, every kilowatt hour you put on the grid, you get a, a, a tax credit for that. So Taking those numbers, I, I went to the EIA, and I, I think the EIA is kind of come under fire a lot lately for its projections, but I'm going to use the EIA projections because they are the, the government-produced ones. So, uh, Unfortunately, just like everybody's projections, the only thing you know about them is that they're wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but, but they have been quite wrong. So I think, um, yeah, uh, it's been tough on the EIA. So, so for advanced nuclear, as predicted by the EIA in 2025, the, the LCOE per megawatt hour is $81. So about $80 per megawatt hour, mm -hmm. which is their levelized cost of electricity. So the, the mm -hmm. dollars per megawatt hour you built. The levelized cost of electricity for combined cycle natural gas is about $40 per megawatt hour. Mm -hmm. uh, according to a report done by MIT, and I, I looked at a couple of them, and I didn't find a number that I really liked because they, they started with the market case for natural gas. So they put it at about $33 per megawatt hour. And I wanted to find something that scanned more onto the EIA's numbers. So I used a percentage. So essentially to add carbon capture to natural gas, there is a roughly 50% increase in price. So if you're mm -hmm. at about $30 per megawatt hour, it gets up to about $45 per megawatt hour, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. So when you put these numbers together, you take $50 per metric ton, you take about $500 of metric tons CO2 per about uh, a million kilowatt hours, you add these all up, there are two ways you can spin this kind of tax credit. One is that these tax credits say that any carbon emissions, any pollute, any non-polluting source gets some funding. And that's like a very like genuine, generous way, generous way to say like, we want to support carbon-free energy sources. But when you look at it kind of from the disingenuous way, what it really looks like is that fossil fuel interests took the amount of money that they might have to spend on carbon capture if carbon legislation comes down the pipeline. Pipe, pipeline. They said, give us the tax credit to basically offset that. So they have a, have a runway of the price of carbon capture technology that will now be offset by the tax credit. And they don't ever have to pay for their emissions. Whereas nuclear, they got a tax credit, but even with that tax credit, they are still not competitive with natural gas with carbon capture. And so I feel like this was kind of like a weird play of like, we will throw a bone to nuclear, but we're not actually like here for nuclear. Like a more market-based approach to this would have just said, if you are zero emissions, you get X dollars per megawatt hour. But that's not what this conservative let uh, Senate or conservative Congress passed. They passed a way to make sure that natural gas never has to pay for its emissions and nuclear energy has a path to victory, but it's not ever going to actually be cost competitive and they're not going to do the work to put out nuclear. Sorry, there was like a lot in there, but that's kind of like <laughs> how I like to frame it. But like, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be like combative. I'm trying to like explain how I feel about this and that like, sure. Yeah, I, yeah. I am all for all forms of clean energy. But when people say they're in favor of nuclear, but when a simple mathematic calculation shows that like nuclear energy under a free market will not be built under this tax regime. And I believe there are values to nuclear that aren't just capitalists. Like I believe that, you know, particularly when you look at like France and Japan and stuff, they built nuclear to prevent the need to import fossil fuels. Like that's why they did it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the cheapest form of energy. And so I feel like there's like this disconnect between like the people who say they love clean energy in all its forms and they love nuclear when like, the things they are doing to get nuclear built aren't in line with what it would take to actually get nuclear built. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. So again, there's a, there's a lot in there. So, so let me, let me try two things. So thing one is, um, you know, wh while I would love to report that I have observed the kind of, uh, you know, sort of thoughtful strategy, even nefarious intent, that, that you've attributed to the policymaking process, it's more like a whirlwind. And whatever sort of currently on, the, whatever ideas are sort of currently on the table that people are shouting loudly about are the ones that tend to, to stick, right? And so 
I think it was less that anybody had the thought that, oh, we're going to you know, throw a bone to nuclear to sort of get them off our back when we actually scratch the backs of the folks in the fossil energy industry. I think it was much more that, you know, no, there were some nuclear advocates who were asking for this specific change in 45Q, and there were some coal and gas and carbon capture advocates asking for this 45Q credit, and it was those communities that made those things their big push, and, and they were in the ears of the right people at the right times to, to make those things part of the, that deal in 2018. So, so I really, I, and, and, you know, having been closely, you know, following and associated with that deal, I, I, I really can say that there wasn't any kind of broader thinking about, you know, well, are we doing enough for nuclear or not? It was, well, this is what the nuclear advocates are asking for. Let's, let's go and, and do this for nuclear that will get the next couple of plants built. And, the, the carbon capture people say that they need this to sort of keep, you know, coal with carbon capture and gas with carbon capture as live opportunities. So let's do that. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say that there was or wasn't intent. I certainly don't want to cast any blame on any of the advocates of any of the technologies, because I think everybody was, was doing the right next thing. But, but this is part of the reason that we're trying to get away from all of these technology specific approaches and to a, more rational and systematic regime with something like the ESIC credit, where there actually is a, a level playing field for all the technologies to compete under under one regime. So that's kind of why we're trying to get that way. And I think that that's a really appealing approach, um, a really appealing approach to a lot of folks. Then on your kind of your your broader question and and the math that you've done about what technology will be economical where, I do think we just have to remember how different and how regional different energy, different zero emission energy technologies are going to end up being across the United States. So everything you said, all the EIA data is, I'm sure, true. If you took the United States and you thought of it as one, you know, nationally averaged, nationally uniform grid, right? But it's anything but that, right? So if you look at the Mountain West, right, um, you've got nothing but wind and sun, out in, in your neck of the woods, right? And so uh, utilities like Excel are going to be able to get to very high penetrations of, uh, of wind and solar um, on their systems. I mean, they might be able to get to 80% of generation capacity by, by that. The folks in the Southeast, in Georgia and the Carolinas, Virginia, they're looking at their resource you know, endowment uh, the renewables are, are paltry compared to the Southwest and, and the Mountain West. They will struggle to get to 50% renewable um, in their system, also given the density of the population and the land constraints and the inevitable nimbyism that comes up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> and, and, uh, which is, which is non-trivial, right? It's really non-trivial. And, and then they start, okay, well, so I'm going to have to have something power dense then. Um, cause you know, so many of those other costs, the nimbyism, the hidden transmission burdens, the, uh, ever increasing siting costs that will occur as you've taken all of the good land and then, right. So, so all of those projections about the LCA of renewables, for example, they kind of, they, they project this kind of inevitable ever further downward march in the LCOE. And we've never, I mean, you know, we've, we've not really tested a system that gets to very high penetrations of variable renewables and, and you know, whether that doesn't start getting more expensive. So, so then they know that they're gonna need some power dense options that don't require as much land or transmission. And so they look at, you know, what's on the table. And right now that's, you know, I mean, there, there could be breakthroughs in fusion, you know, we could have low cost hydrogen, but let's say today that really means, uh, you know, ultra deep hot rock geothermal, which is kind of largely unproven. Uh, and, uh, 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 you know, a, nuclear plants of some kind, uh, either existing light water or, um, or advanced technologies, uh, you know, light water SMRs or, or non-light water reactors, uh, or it's, you know, carbon capture, either they, they put that on their existing plants or they, um, they build new, probably new, uh, gas plants. So the Southeast has very bad resources for carbon sequestration. So, you know, the idea that, you know, not only do they not have the fossil fuels in the Southeast, and so they're either bringing the coal in by train or the gas in by pipeline, and bringing that gas in by pipeline is really challenging now, right? So the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was just, um, despite winning in the Supreme Court, the, you know, Duke and Dominion gave up on, on the battle because they knew all of the, you know, follow-on, you know, litigation that, that was coming. Um, I don't know of any other major new natural gas pipelines that are going to attempt to bring gas into the Southeast. 
and so then they know that they'd have to build a pipeline back out of the southeast, either going down to the uh, saline formations in um, in Louisiana or maybe up to you know some of the old uh, you know uh, old oil fields in you know Ohio or western Pennsylvania. You know those those pipelines can be two million bucks a mile, and so there are lots of parts of the country where those make sense, where you'd have a real density of carbon capture opportunities, and they're very near saline formations. But a lot of those LCOE numbers for for gas with carbon capture either don't take into account the sequestration costs and the transportation costs, or they use very simple kind of averaged numbers which are including some of the very best sites in the country where CCS is going to make a ton of sense. But you're just going to have big parts of the Southeast in particular. I think eventually you'll have big parts of the Northeast where they also don't like building anything, um, <laughs> where, where in the end, it's actually the, the economics, again, they're going to sort themselves out for nuclear because of either lack of, of carbon sequestration opportunities or lack of geothermal opportunities or an inability to build the transmission or the pipeline infrastructure, which would enable higher penetrations of renewables or the carbon capture infrastructure. And so this is the problem with nuclear. It's got all these benefits, which, you know, if you really got into them and did the math, you could quantify them, but it's, it's not something you can quantify on a national basis. It's something you quantify on a site specific basis. And then you've got all these other benefits that you've shared, like its contribution to national energy independence and national energy sort of, you know, freedom uh, that are very difficult to quantify and that we don't have any current market mechanism to quantify. We certainly don't have a good market mechanism to quantify the, 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 the clean air benefits other than just, you know, compliance with, with local, um, you know, uh, traditional, you know, criteria pollutant uh, stuff under the Clean Air Act. You know, Republicans in the Senate are starting to think about some really creative ideas like, you know, could we use the Clean Air Act and the concept of prevention of significant deterioration, which is sort of a core you know, concept from the, from the beginning of the Clean Air Act? Could we use that to enable EPA to offer credits for existing nuclear plants that are about to shut down? Right. And so could we have a federal regime that's targeted at these plants and says, well, if these things shut down, there's going to be increases in both carbon emissions and other criteria pollutants as a result. And could we set up EPA as a sort of a credit making agency to, to keep some of these things online? So that <clears throat> could be a very interesting um, approach there. It's one that conservative policymakers are, are playing around with. And I think you're, you're seeing, there's a long way of saying, you're seeing more and more conservatives uh, getting, you know, coming to the realization, I think agreeing with you that it's not so much that nuclear is not economic. It's just that it has all of these benefits that our current market system is not well set up to compensate. And so how do we create new systems around that, that actually value all those other benefits? I think, <laughs> like I said, this is one of the harder interviews to conduct because there's so many things that I'm kind of like, that sounds so, so good but I'm not seeing exactly how this is transitioning to exactly where I want to be, which is, you know, uh, you mentioned there the non-economic values and like there are a group of people talking about the non-economic values of clean energy and they're very interested in clean energy, but I don't hear it as much coming from your side of the aisle. And so I'm just like, I'm trying to see like, okay, which parts of this do I think are like really going to come to fruition in the near term in the, on the scale we need for climate change and which parts are still kind of that like uh, hedging against pollution legislation against the, the fossil industry. And I'm just, I'm just not sure. And I, I really struggle with this one. Um, but I do really appreciate all the, the thought put into it on this. And in particular, so uh, I had one more kind of question, but I think we're kind of a little bit further along in time than, uh, than I, we have to address it. So I'll just go ahead and move on to the last section, if that's okay. The last like, question I had of the day for you. Let's do it. Okay, cool. So I'm calling this, center pol this section Policy Corner. What I kind of wanted to do is uh, just do like a little back and forth of what would be your policy recommendations if you could put one, like if you could put one policy recommendation down. And I've been thinking on my side, like what a policy recommendation I would put forward that conservatives might be really in favor of that would get nuclear energy kind of where I, I think it would be in a good place. And so I kind of want to go back and forth and like ask questions about each other. So, so if you were to like lay out a policy today that you would pass, that would be 
really beneficial for the nuclear industry, but still aligned with some of those values you mentioned, what would that be? The ESIC tax credit, which I already talked about. ESIC tax credit. Go ahead and explain that for us. So that's that's this concept where you've got uh, a systematic approach to demonstrating and deploying new clean energy technologies. Um, nuclear has a lane under that approach, uh, along with uh, all of the other zero emission energy sources. And it would sort of systematically give new nuclear plants 40% investment tax credits, uh, or, you know, thought of another way, if, if that was in DOE terms, you know, 40% cost shares uh, for their demonstration projects, uh, and then 30% cost shares for sort of the next generation. And then once they got to sort of nth of a kind, uh, pretty significant production tax credits to, um, to operate. So, um, and, and it would, it would do that alongside doing it for all the other technologies. So, um, uh, and that, that's a, that's legislation that's already in the works. It, it has legs, it has real co-sponsors, uh, which is also important because, you know, um, theoretical policies are great, but if you can't convince any policymakers <laughs> that they're worth doing, it's, they, they don't go very far. So it's something that really, that has interesting bipartisan legs. And so that, that's what I would, that's what I would do to, to deploy, um, a lot more advanced nuclear. What are some of the other technologies in that tax credit bill, if I may ask? So it covers uh, it covers the whole suite of zero emission technologies, but but they need to be significant improvements over the baseline that's out there today. So um, there's a lane for all the renewable resources for for wind and for solar, for tidal, for geothermal, and for hydropower. But in each case, the technologies that would qualify would need to be a step change over the baseline. So, for example, in uh, for all of them, you know, something that significantly expanded the geographical area across which that resource can be captured would be one of the performance characteristics that would get you the tax credit. So offshore wind, in short, would, would qualify um, for the credit. Um, thermal, zero emission thermal generation, whether that's from coal or gas with carbon capture or just by burning hydrogen in thermal you know, turbines, uh, would qualify. There's a lane for both fission and fusion. Of course, there is no baseline for fusion. So the first <laughs> commercial fusion technology will get the credit. It will, you know, sort of de facto become the baseline. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I'm missing anything. I think that's, I think that's, I've probably missed some technology in that mix. But basically, every, everything that is out there on the horizon or the near horizon has a, is represented in the legislation. So interestingly, when I talked to Susie, I asked her what she would be interested in. And she's like, appropriations, just throw money at things. <laughs> and I was like, that is interesting. And this sounds like uh, you and Susie are in alignment. So there we, there we go. Uh, well, well, the glorious thing about the tax incentives is once they're passed, you don't need the annual appropriations to keep them going. And so I'm, I'm totally with Susie. I mean, I'm very supportive of more basic and applied um, R&D on these things, the, the R and the appropriations route is, and uh, ClearPath does a lot of work on appropriations and we've been very supportive of increased appropriations for, for all these technologies, um, particularly the, you know, the big nuclear demonstration program, the ARDP that's, uh, that's running and accept, well, it's just acceptance applications. So it's deciding right now what America's nuclear future is going to be and which two, which two technologies and, and, and companies or consortia get, um, you know, get to, to try to demonstrate their thing by 2025. We've been very, very supportive of that program. Um, the, I think ESIC is important because it then takes the next step. So it's not just about the, the first of a kind demonstration, it's, it's getting from first of a kind to nth of a kind. So uh, if it's all right, I have a policy idea for you. I'm like, Please. here for it. Let's no. do it. So yeah. I have like munched over this a lot. And in particular, again, I just want to say like, I love coming at this from a conservative mindset. I think it's really a valuable space. And so I've asked myself, what do I think would embody conservative values that would solve some of the biggest problems in the nuclear industry? And with SMRs, I think there's a couple interesting problems that need to be solved. The first one is some of the gigawatt scale nuclear reactors don't necessarily... Um, aren't the biggest champions of SMRs because SMRs are in many ways kind of a superior technology, but that means that they might need to replace some of these gigawatt scale reactors. Like we should probably be considering how to, how to do that. And so there's not always like a race to adopt them. There's maybe like a, a race to the second adopter of SMRs. On the flip side of that, SMRs in order to be cost effective need to be produced in a factory. And so you have to have, you know, multiple people buying them even before you've built the factory. You need like a, an established reign of contracts 
before the factory has been been started. And that's when you get the really good cost reductions. And so my kind of like policy idea, I did a different policy idea with Susie, but my kind of policy idea is a first of a kind demonstration only for first of a kind demonstration investment tax credit, but only for operating nuclear reactors that replace their existing capacity with SMRs. So you take a facility like Davis-Bessey, which actually I did want to talk about, talk about HB6 today, but we kind of kind of went over on, on some of the other subjects. But what they, uh, my kind of like first of a kind tax proposal would look at is essentially saying, we will pay 50% of the cost of replacing your existing nuclear reactor with SMRs if you do the three things. One, you have to replace it for the exact same capacity. Two, you have to remain, ra maintain 10% of your, 90% of your workforce. So you could, most SMRs have the idea that they will operate on a smaller workforce. And of course, jobs in these communities is very important. And so the tax credit would only apply if you maintain 90% of your workforce and you replace your reactor within 10 years of submitting your license. And in particular, one of the things about nuclear reactors that people don't quite, uh, I think, realize is the nuclear site that they are on is very valuable. It takes five to 10 years to license a site just to hold a nuclear reactor. That's not even including the reactor. So if you can use existing sites to build SMRs, you quickly readjust the time frame on which they can be built. So I don't know, a, a targeted tax cut specifically at nuclear reactors that are operating today that replace themselves with SMRs on site guarantee at least, you know, an SMR is somewhere between 50 and 100 megawatts. A, giga, uh, a nuclear reactor operating today is about a gigawatt, 10 to 20 units in order to, to replace the reactor. And you kind of manage that scale. So if you do it for a couple of reactors, you're guaranteed at least a uh, hundred customers for the burgeoning SMR company. I don't know. What do you think? I like it. I think I like it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it uh, solves a lot of problems in a smart way. So it, you know, for, for, po for folks that don't like nuclear, don't like the expansion of nuclear, you could say, no, 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 I'm only talking about more nuclear on the existing sites and those states and those communities always love the plants because they get all the mm -hmm. jobs and the benefits of the tax base. You know, there are some places like, uh, there are some places like New York state where governor Cuomo, despite a stated, uh, commitment to solving climate change has for kind of parochial political reasons, been, you know, hell bent on shutting down the most profitable nuclear plant in the country, Indian point, which is, uh, which is not smart policy from any perspective, but, um, that you know that you, you'd have folks potentially pushing back against these, you know, the, the very few locally unpopular nuclear plants. Vermont Yankee might be another one of those. Although it's literally the municipality would absolutely love um, having this. Uh, the the one other concern I'd have about it uh, is, you know, do you provide a perverse incentive to shut some? of the existing gigawatt scale light water reactors down sooner than they otherwise, you know, economically would have um, it, just for the sake of, of, uh, you know, replacing them with SMRs. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I might frame it a little bit differently, which is kind of any existing site, right? You're taking advantage of all the existing site benefits, um, you know, can, can use this. So whether the plant is one of the ones that's retired five years ago and is in decommissioning right now, or whether it's a, a site that's going to continue to have nuclear existing large light water, you know, Turkey Point or something in Florida, running for another couple of decades. Uh, you know, you just you're taking advantage of these sites and the interconnects and all that, and all of the additional space that most of them have um, to build more SMRs there. Um, I think you know makes a ton of sense. And then the one other you know tweak I would have is you know why cabinet just to just to SMRs, why not say, you know, any advanced reactor? Uh, because while, you know, I, I do think it's very likely that the future will go in the direction of, of smaller and more modular, you know, you, it does sacrifice the scale benefits of a bigger plant. And so if a, if a you know, if, you know, the, the molten salt people want to build a gigawatt scale plant, because that's the right, you know, balance of benefits of scale and, you know, um, and, uh, and cost savings and, and compactness, you know, why not, why not let them be eligible for something like that? In addition to all the people that, that want to go very small. Um, but I, I do think that there's a, there's a great kernel in there around saving the local workforces and repurposing the local sites and all of that. I think that that's, that could have very broad, 
very broad appeal because there's just there's big constituencies uh, out there on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers for preserving the existing fleet. Yeah, and the reason I mentioned I think it aligns with conservative values is if I structured it in the way I think I would, I would not allow the tax credit to be delivered until the first megawatt hour goes to the grid. So until the plant is successfully replaced, taxpayers don't pay anything for it, um, with the exception of maybe like beefing up the NRC. So that was kind of like one of the reasons why I thought it might appeal to the conservative side of the political spectrum in that you don't you don't pay money until you get the product and the risk. Yeah, the pay, the pay for performance. Yeah. 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 I think that that's uh, I think that's really smart. The, the place and service requirement, I think, is uh, is is smart. Um, you know, most of the folks that have kind of looked at reforming the way the Office of Nuclear Energy does things recommend something like that, you know, based on um, DOD procurement, for example, that there's just, you know, there's a real commitment to, to paying for for a successful, um, you know, uh, product as opposed to just writing checks for, for things that sometimes never, never come to pass. Yeah. And just, I'll, I'll add one more point, but then I think we should probably wrap up and, and get you back to your day, Rich. You've taken so much time for with me and I really appreciate it. Um, just on the point though of gigawatt scale reactors, uh, I think the nuclear industry has been attacked so much for being unsafe that they're very, it's very hard to have this conversation. Uh, but to be clear, like SMRs represent an increase in safety, not that existing reactors are unsafe, but SMRs are kind of a safer, more elegant design. And so at some point, instead of this kind of endless licensing cycle, I do hope those big reactors get replaced with the, the smaller, safer designs. Um, I don't want to like put anyone out of business and out of a job to do that. I'm very in favor of keeping the gigawatt scale reactors online as long as we can. Um, but at some point, there should be a, a technology phase-out period where we switch to SMRs, in my opinion. I do think that there'll be a natural kind of evolution in that. The, the one thing I would state is that I, I think that there are, uh, and I, your clarification is a good one, very important, the existing reactors are not unsafe. It's just that these other ones, you know, I, you know, said different ways, they either offer the same safety at lower cost or they, you know, provide more safety at the same cost, but however you want to say it. Um, I think that that natural turnover of the fleet is is going to happen. Even if we build, we're, we're not going to build more gigawatt scale light water reactors with the same technology in this country. I don't, we're not going to build very few thousand. Right? I think that that's we can only hope. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just you know, I've, I've not spoken with a single utility executive anywhere in the country who's interested in, in repeating the, the pain that Southern has has gone through, and uh, that's in part about safety, and it's in part also just because of the the dynamics of that that project, those projects, because we, you know, tried and failed at summer as well. And the amount of nuclear grade concrete and rebar and all of that, that you have to build for a gigawatt scale light water reactor. It's just, it just doesn't uh, fit well with the current sort of strengths of our country and advanced manufacturing and craft labor and, and all that stuff. And so I think we're naturally going to move away from designs like that. I do think that there are some potential designs out there that could offer similar safety benefits, for example, operating at low pressures, um, where you could get a lot of those safety benefits, even at the larger scale of the reactor. So like a, a one gigawatt, a gigawatt scale molten salt reactor, for example, could still operate at very low pressures. Um, and therefore, despite having a lot of material in it, um, you know, could be quite safe, uh, or, you know, provide same safety as existing light water um, at lower cost. And so I think we should be open to multiple scales. I do also just think that this is a case where market dynamics are going to sort of take care of it for us, though, because the, the just the overall preference in the utility generation space is moving to smaller. So, you know, you're, you're seeing fewer and fewer very large gas plants being built, for example, and people are shifting over more to, you know, these kind of bite sized, you know, mm -hmm. word, you know, 300 <laughs> megawatt, 300 to 500 megawatt plants. Um, it's it's lower risk. For the company, um, it's you know it's faster to build and prepare the site. Uh, just everything about it de-risks the process, and I think that um, if nuclear is going to be successful economically, it's going to have to make the case not just on the not just in the, the terms of the numbers, but also the risk profile of the project. And going smaller is going to be very helpful in that. It's again, it's one of these kind of non-economic intangibles. Um, you know, just the risk profile of the plant. But I think that that, you know, the, the market will take care of a lot of that for us anyway. All right, Rich, you have given me so much time and I really appreciate it. Uh, before we wrap up here, what's next for you? What are some of the things you're working on? What can people look out for? 
So I'm going to say it again. I think that this easy tax credit is a is a is a big good idea. I think that the energy bills that are currently making their way through the House and the Senate, which uh, authorize a, a whole suite of new demonstrations for all of these technologies, um, the Senate energy bill, for example, very bipartisan, led by Senator Chairman Murkowski, Senate ENR, um, it uh, authorizes 17 new major technology demonstrations by 2025. Uh, including a number of nuclear demonstrations, along with storage and geothermal and um, uh, and and carbon capture projects. Uh, so that's that's pretty exciting. It does have a path to passage this year. And as we as we go forward, um, you know, into next year, I think one of the themes we'll be thinking more about is how to actually get all this stuff built, because we're not convinced that with the existing regulatory regimes whether that's the National Environmental Protection Act uh, or the NRC processes or just the way we cite transmission lines, whatever, uh, or pipelines, um, that we actually can build things fast enough to hit any of the kinds of goals that people are talking about. Um, certainly not the very aggressive plans that um, that Susie's team and folks are, are laying out, um, you know, zero emissions by 2035. I, I'm not even sure that, that we, we could hit the, um, you know, the net zero by 2050 goals that a lot of the utilities have laid out, given the existing morass of, of issues around permitting and siting. And so we're going to be thinking, I think, more and more about how you uh, streamline all of those processes to provide the same level of environmental protections, but at greatly uh, accelerated timelines and, and less cost and greater certainty. That's awesome. It sounds like we have a lot to look forward to from, from you and your team and stuff. Uh, so where, if people want to reach out to you, are you on Twitter? Like, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm at uh, Powell Rich. Awesome. And our site is clearpath.org. Well, once again, Rich, thank you again so much for your time. And everyone out there, thank you so much for this list listening to this very long three-part series, including this episode, which was awesome, on uh, nuclear, nuclear energy and kind of some of my struggles with it and some other energy leaders' opinions on it. Uh, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Colorado Roo. Uh, if you like this episode, feel free to tweet at me or Rich. And uh, otherwise, stay safe out there, everyone. Thanks for having me, Jordan.